All right, everyone. So great to see all of you. Uh, welcome. I'm Josh. I'm the founding pastor, teaching pastor. So glad that you guys are here. Um, hey, just uh, before we jump in, just want to um, just make one, uh, one statement about the Psalm 119 study. So the whole reason I ended up ever being a pastor, a teaching pastor that is, is because of my discovery of Psalm 119 in my first early morning study I ever led. Um, I actually led it, it was in Southern California, and I had to lead it at 5 a.m. Um, because everyone was commuting an hour to get to work, and it didn't matter if you were two miles from work, it takes an hour to get anywhere in L.A. Um, and I started a Psalm 119 study for a group of guys, and it was built upon this idea that it takes 21 days uh, for a discipline to become a habit. And, and I thought Psalm 118 is so perfect because it's 22 days, so one extra day to guarantee that, that habitual uh, practice of seeking the face of Jesus before we seek any other face. Uh, which, is a, which is a practice that I think is desperately needed uh, in the church. And I'm not talking about doing things to earn God's favor. I'm talking about having our affections realigned, which is the only true motivation for any real change anyway. Um, so Pip said come to one or any. I just will say you should come to all of them because it's going to be awesome. And here's my commitment. I'm teaching through it. I will be here before you get here. I will make coffee every day for you. I will greet you. If maybe you've never met me before, I would love to meet you. So I'm going to give up 22 mornings uh, to, to come and be a part of this community and, and serve all of you. So I just encourage you to come because I think it's an amazing thing. And each section, I've taught through this so many times, uh, eventually it'll be a book. Uh, out of 176 verses, 174 of them uh, speak directly to the importance of Scripture as a part of our devotional life, as, as the means by which we have our hearts redirected toward the living Christ. So come and, and join me in that, and I promise I'll have coffee for you every day. I'll tell you one really funny story. I did it for a group of guys um, in 2016. Were any of you guys here for that? How many of you were here for that? So a few, a few hands. Um, but the girls, the ladies were like, we want to do it too. So then I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll do it for the women as well. And I, we had a bunch of female teachers, but I was the one that came and made coffee for them every day. And uh, there was like 200 women that came. And one day I got there and the half and half was gone. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I'm freaking out because it's about to start and there's all these women waiting. So I run to the minute mark and I'm, I'm not great when I'm really stressed out. I just kind of lose my bearings on reality. And I ran into the minute uh, and I just yelled at the clerk. I'm like, where's the cream? I have 200 women waiting for me. <laughs> With no context, no context whatsoever. And he just looked at me and he was like, it's great. It's gonna go down. It's one of my, one of my highlights as a pastor. So creepy. <laughs> Uh, well, hey, we are going to um, jump back into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Ian did a great job last week. I love that he taught for seven minutes and 32 seconds with his baby in his arm. Um, it's impressive. Uh, you know, this, this study, uh, I think, is so crucial for the church right now um, that we learn how to interpret um, Scripture through the lens of the gospel. Scripture should be the interpreter of Scripture. Uh, and the gospel is the center of Scripture. It's, what, it's the radical, one-way love, the grace, that love without contingency that comes from God toward us in Jesus. Jesus here as the king, establishing the rule of his kingdom, his ethic, um, and the impossibility of that ethic pushing us to the edge, I will say the precipice of, of human effort, uh, to force us to recognize that the whole reason he came is because we could never climb <laughs> to where he was. That the world's symbol for religion is a ladder. Do these things and you will be okay. Christianity sits fundamentally opposed to that vision. This is not a heroic ascent. 
This is God's glory revealed through his self-humiliation. This is God come down to us, meeting us in our impotence, in our brokenness. The reason the gospel, specifically the cross, is so offensive uh, to the human intellect because everything in our world tells us that everything is available to us if we just try harder, if we just do better, be better. But the fact is, is that all of us, when we're honest with ourselves, are never totally satisfied with where we're at. In fact, there's a deep longing that's written upon the fabric of human existence, which is the desire to be more and at the same time still the same. I want to be me, but I want to be a better version of me. I want to, I want to get to this place, and if I can get to this place, then I will be happy. And that search for enoughness, completeness, is an exhausting one that exhausts its adherence, but we would rather be exhausted climbing ladders, we would even be more comfortable falling than surrendering to the lordship of another. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount's about. I think that the great danger, as I've said each week, is to try to take the Sermon on the Mount and do what Tolstoy did when he rewrote the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, in the language of his day um, by trying to eradicate all of the divine mystery, um, all of the deity of Christ, and just said, if we actually lived out these ethics, we would truly have a utopian society. The problem is, is that no one is capable of doing that, and that was the great vision of, of Marxism, was the idea of the brotherhood of man. The problem is, is that there was one thing that was fundam fundamentally forgotten, that humans are not basically good, but that there is something fundamentally wrong at the core of who we are, and it's called sin. And sin, I would just simply define as our rebellion against God's rule. It's our desire to be our own gods, to define our own realities, that we are the center of our own universe. But when we put ourselves at the center of the universe, the idea of the brotherhood of man inevitably, and we saw this throughout the 20th century when Marxism was at its peak, is that every time um, a society embraced the idea, somebody took advantage of it, leading to not, not the utopian vision that Karl Marx had or that Tolstoy had, but instead what you saw was the most violent, the most violent century in human history all built upon the idea that we are our own gods. God is dead, as Nietzsche said, but we forget that Nietzsche said we killed him, <laughs> and we're still reaping the consequences of that. So today, we're gonna consider uh, this, this fundamental conviction. Disciples of Jesus are forgiven murderers. I just want you to kind of put that into your mind, because in your mind, you might think that you're not a murderer, but I'm going to just tell you right now, I'll give you a secret, that Jesus begins with the external and does what he always does. He doubles down. People have turned this passage into a call to pacifism, and, and while I would agree that the, that the Christians should not be marked by violence, um, but by, this, by, by a humble surrender and service for the good of those around them, the fact is is that Jesus takes us to the heart and he is not talking about the external practice of pacifism. What he is talking about is that it doesn't matter if you're the, the world's greatest pacifist, that if you are honest with your own heart, every time you rage against someone internally, even if you don't act, you are in essence, in God's eyes, a murderer. And this is something that baffled his listeners. Remember, when he said to his disciples, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I guarantee you it was the most disappointing word they had ever heard. Because they're like, you're going to fulfill it? Awesome. What does that mean? Oh, good. Here's the thing. I'm going to fulfill it. It's, I've come to fulfill it. Now let me show you what it really means. And he goes even deeper. And it's like, wait a minute. I thought you... You, you were fulfilling the law, you're actually making it even harder because it's always meant to drive us back to that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves because it is when we come to the end of ourselves that God can begin to do something miraculous, bring resurrection life into our lives. So let's begin 
this passage. For all of God's disciples are forgiven murderers. And that's good news. And also kind of bad news. Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, Jesus begins by saying, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I just finished this book by um, Cormac MacArthur. Cormac McCarthy, he's like my favorite, probably one of my favorite authors of all time, and I think the last like truly great novelist of the 20th century, and he just wrote two books, the next one comes out on December 12th, and he's 89 years old, and I personally, although the reviews are mixed, I think, I think it's his masterpiece, and I just think it'll take, it'll take time, him dying, for people to recognize it for what it is, because of his, and you know why it's controversial, is because he's 89 and he doesn't care what anyone thinks. He's not interested in political correctness. He's not interested in all of the, all of the culture wars because he knows he's almost dead. And his, and his fascination and obsession with, uh, with a lost world, as, he, as his books often deal with, it's like, you know, the Border Trilogy, it's the cowboys riding a horse at the beginning of the 20th century when everyone's driving cars, he's still riding horseback. It's like, it's like these forgotten realities. And this one, he is grieving the state and the confusion of the world in a really profound way. But one of his characters, um, John Shadan, who's like a he's, a, he's a player and not necessarily a good person. He says this, forgiveness has a timeline while it is never too late for revenge. <laughs> what a profound statement. Forgiveness has a timeline, but it's never too late for revenge. You know, violence has generally been thought of as some aggressive instinct that's natural to, uh, to human beings. But one of my favorite thinkers, Rene Girard, saw violence as something that all of us participate in that every culture is built upon it, and that it's not driven by natural instinct, it's actually driven by something that is the outcome of that fundamental brokenness, sin. And he argues, uh, his whole philosophy is called the mimetic theory. And the mimetic theory is built upon this concept that everything we do is driven by our desire for what someone else has. And he, he, he shows, he, he's brilliant, and he's definitely worth, I think he is a prophetic voice for today. He's been dead for many years. But he talks about how all cultures are built on violence, but violence always has the potential of destroying a culture. And so cultures and religions have created the sacrificial system as a means of containing violence. And so what we do is we create the scapegoat. And societies come around a common enemy, and if we make that person pay, what's funny is that scapegoats often also become the object of worship um, after their death uh, in literature and in, in mythology uh, and even in human history. But the fact is, is that scapegoats go all the way back to the garden. The first outcome of, of the, the fall in the garden was what? Our first parents... They, they eat of the fruit that they're told they're not to. They, they've decided for themselves to be their own gods. And the moment they do, they become aware of their own nakedness. They are relationally divided. Um, they lose their relationship with God. They lose their relationship with one another. And then they begin to become even, the, the relational rift is three ways. They become an enigma to themselves. They become aware of their nakedness and they hide. The outcome of sin is hiding. But... The next outcome of sin, um, after you're done hiding and you're exposed, it's the doubling down that leads to what? Scapegoating. Scapegoating. And the scapegoat mechanism is seen when God confronts the first parents in the garden and he says, what is it that you have done, Adam? And he said, it wasn't me, it was the woman whom you gave me. So right there, the man blames the woman. And what does the woman do? It wasn't me, it was the snake who deceived me. And what did the snake do? 
he's actually honest. He's like, you're right, I'm a liar. That's what I do. I, I did it. I'm not going to lie. What comes out of that, the scapegoat, blame shifting, I'm not responsible, they're responsible. The next, and this is that, this is, are we not feeling that in our current culture? The hyper-victimization, the demand for justice, a bitterness and a rage. Violence is at an, I just read a statistic that Portland is possibly um, uh, more dangerous right now than, than Detroit or Baltimore. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but man, what a crazy thing to, to read that. Portland. I mean, don't you miss, I remember I was just sharing how I loved it when Portland was weird. Now it's just angry. And angry is not nearly as, at least weird is amusing. Like, what happened? All the angry people forced all those guys on tall bicycles to leave. Like, why? Where'd they go? They're like, we're going to Detroit. It's not safe here. People steal our bikes <laughs> and cut them down to size. That's what they do. <laughs> this morning, I was sitting in my chair, and I, you know, you're writing a message on anger, and I, even as I'm writing a message on anger and the importance of, of being a conduit of love and forgiveness, I found myself getting angry about the anger that's all around me. And I even found myself murdering many people in my head before the sermon was even done being written. And then God sent me a messenger from heaven. I glanced out of the corner of my eye. I live on Crystal Springs Boulevard. And there I see a red stocking cap and a... And, and a a scarf flowing in the wind and the cap's moving quickly and it's a man surrounded in sunlight and in his hands he's holding a recorder and he was playing what sounded like Rachmaninoff really fast perfectly just like it was so good and and I'm like how how is he moving I, it looks like he's floating and I stood up and it wasn't Mr. Timnus what it was was a man on a unicycle playing the recorder and I was like Thank you, Jesus. I needed that right now. This is, my heart feels better. <laughs> the world is not all lost. A guy just in the freezing cold, riding a unicycle, playing a recorder perfectly. And that's everything I loved about Portland that's gone. Um, so it's not gone. This concept of murder as the basis of civilization, we see that played out. What happens? The scapegoat. It's not me, it's, it's her, it's her fault. It's not, it's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. Satan made me do it. Well, the next thing that happens is kids are born. And it's two brothers. And there you see Gerard's vision of the mimetic principle. Is a jealousy for what one has done. I want what he has. And the only way to deal with that is to either accept that you are not that person or to make them pay. And what happens with Cain and Abel? And it becomes, it becomes a great archetypal story of, of jealousy and anger. You know, I, I actually don't like the um, separation of, um, of murder into various categories. Like there's a hate crime and then there's, a, there's you know, um, an act of passion, you know, a, Husband finds out his wife is cheating on him and, he, and in, an, in an act of, in a moment of passion, he kills her and her lover. And we find, we're like, that's not as bad as this. Um, when someone kills someone because of the color of their skin or because they're different or they're a minority group, we're like, that's a hate, that's a more heinous crime. Isn't it funny how human beings create categories for evil. But we don't even really like to call evil evil anymore. Let's just call it what it is. It's murder. And it doesn't matter if it's passion or it's because of a distape. It flows out of, even if it's momentary, hatred. A hatred in the human heart. A mimetic theory, a desire to be the one in the right. We, we even, murderers now demand their rights to be victims. As I just finished a book working through my own history, it would be easy for me to be an embittered soul by the fact that I had really terrible stepdads who were abusive and that I, had, uh, that I grew up in deep poverty and lived in more single wide trailers than I like to admit. And I know what it's like to buy food with food stamps as a little boy and be very aware. I know what it's like to have plastic 
fake volume shoe source Air Jordans when everyone had the real thing and then be made fun of and picked on. I know what it's like to be punched in the stomach every day of ninth grade and be called a faggot. I know what it's like to experience the oppressiveness of human nature. And I don't say that to shock you or to make you feel bad, but I also recognize that everything that happened to me, I am capable of and have often done. And of what the book showed me as I worked through those, those tragics, that we all have stories. Everybody has backstories. There's always reasons why we are the way that we are. But it doesn't change the fact. We don't, we don't get to make up excuses for evil behavior because we're victims. Everybody will be a victim and everybody will be a victimizer. And we need to remember that Jesus died for both. So when Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, what is he quoting here? He's quoting the 10 commandments. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. The Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. I, I think it's important for us to understand that every command that God made, you shall not murder. Why did God say you shall not murder? Because he is not a murderer. He's the giver of life. I think that it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not saying that this is not a true statement. In fact, he just got done saying, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And here he takes it further and says, listen, you may not actually murder anyone, but I'm telling you every time you are angry with your brother or sister, you are in danger of judgment. So, Notice he says you're in danger. He's not saying you are under judgment. He's saying you're in danger of judgment. That anger is a natural response to injustice. The problem is, is that we're overly trustworthy in our, in our, in, in blind to the ways that we can be unjust in our own behavior. I always say that the greatest danger of people that, that love the grace of God is that we love it for ourselves and we often abuse it in ourselves while refusing it for others. I think the church is actually quite masterful at that. The problem is, is that the Sermon on the Mount is meant to remind us that we're all on this even playing field. We don't get to elevate ourselves above others. When I am honest with my own heart and I look around at the world that I live in, I am not one who has become free of anger. <laughs> I get angry every time I drive through our city because I care about the city I live in. I'm frustrated at the state it's in. What matters is what do we do with that anger quickly? <laughs> I like what it says in Psalm 37, eight. Cease from anger, cease from anger, anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. It's funny that there are so many books right now on, on uh, cognitive science and the impacts of trauma and in, in un, in, in unchallenged emotions upon the physical body. The, we know for a fact that, that anger that has, that has no release will do unbelievable damage to the, to the body. It actually like cuts years off your life. Have you guys read the book, The Body Keeps the Score? that we are physical creatures and what happens psychologically, emotionally, spiritually has impacts on our bodies. And I have seen firsthand as a pastor the damage done to anger that is not released. We're not meant to hold our anger in. In fact, we're told about God himself, I love it, it says, uh, in, in Exodus, I mean, one of the most powerful passages is the, the statement that God is slow to anger or he is, he is, uh, he is able to hold his anger. And as people ask me, like, what about righteous indignation? Righteous indignation. Uh, yes, there is righteous indignation. The problem is, is that even if we have righteous indignation, we are not capable of maintaining it. It will become sin quickly. And all you have to do is just go on to, go on, on Facebook or Twitter or, or um, Instagram, especially if you go back and look at posts during uh, the 
absolute reckoning that our world went under uh, during 2020 and the amount of vitriol that was, that was spewed by good people because we were all isolated. It's way easier to hate people when they're not in front of you. In the isolation, it just brought it out. There, there's something that detaches us from, from other human beings. We will say horrible things about one another as long as they're not in front of us. That's why they, there was a study I read on the, on the dark web and it's like some of the leading like racist um, kind of uh, uh, um, neo-Nazi movements are led by like, like lonely dudes in trailers around the world that just spend all their time reading online and sitting on forums but never actually interacting with people. Uh, it, it, it creates a two-dimensional worldview um, and it, it blinds us to the own, our own brokenness. We, we think, you know, have you ever watched like Jeopardy? And you're like, you know the answer. Isn't it amazing how often we know the answer? But if you were to be put into the pressure of being in front of a studio audience, you would know quickly that knowing the answer under pressure is a completely different thing. And the moment you're under pressure, it's like, I know that, I just can't think of it right now. That's, the, that's, that's what happens. And, and, and we'll watch it on the we're like, idiot, come on, everybody knows that. I, I, I know that, I've heard people say those kinds of things. I've said them, um, it's because we're very, very poor on, on judgment of our own. We're overly confident in our, in our belief that we are correct. And I think if anyone's overly confident in their, own, in their own cognitive thinking, just read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. You will realize that you should never trust your own thoughts ever, ever, ever again. Um, because the human mind is unbelievable um, at making us believe we have information that we don't. I mean, that's a, I mean, listen to the amount of things that people will state with such dogma about things they cannot possibly have all the information for. I love hearing people like make just generalization statements about a human being they've never met before. We do it with our politicians, we do it with our actors and people that are in the limelight, and we don't like it because of that mimetic principle. We're, we, we think we would do it different if we had what they had. That's often the, the case. Uh, and, and then we overthink that we know them, that somehow we know what they really are. And as Christians, if we actually allow the light of Christ to shine into our own hearts, as we will get to eventually in the Sermon on the Mount, if we remove the log from our own eyes, we will be far more gentle when we remove the sliver from our brother or sister's eyes. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that I think is a great warning against wrath. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So in your anger, don't sin. So it's, if, in some translations say, be angry, but don't sin. Like we are to hate what is evil, but to cling to what is good. But the fact is, is that, that if there is an anger over sin, what it should lead us to is, is first of all, Lord, if there's anything in me, show me. I wanna stand for you rightly, but what Jesus will immediately show you is like you can't be angry at the very people that I came to save. You can be angry about sin, but that, that merging of those worlds, we become blind to the divine image bearer that is the person responsible for the sin that we, we see. And often if we were just, we would examine a little more closely, we would see that that sin is never far from any of us. That's why I love Charles Price's definition of sin. He says, listen, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. What that means, you, you miss the bus by 30 minutes, someone else misses it by five. The person that missed it by five doesn't turn to you and say, I only missed it by five. You both missed the stinking bus. It's the murderer that killed, that killed Dahmer in prison. He was a murderer. <laughs> and he killed a murderer and everyone praised him for doing something just. Because in his mind, he wasn't as bad of a murderer. At least he didn't eat people. I mean, that's generally like, okay, but you're still a killer. And our qualification of things, our willingness to sort things out, to justify bad behavior, is a terrifying reality. What Jesus wants us to understand here is anger 
that is not dealt with quickly is the means, the greatest means, I would argue, by which Satan takes God's servants and uses them as his tools. Nothing does more damage to the church than when there is a community with an unforgiving spirit. This is why I fundamentally hold with absolute tenaciousness. Show me I'm wrong in scripture and maybe I'll back down a little bit. That Jesus, Peter, Paul, the writers of the New Testament were not political. They did not try to overturn political systems. They never came. I promise you, for those of you that think either the current president or the last president, it depends on what side you hang on, is the worst thing that ever happened. I promise you, I will take both of them over Nero. And nobody was saying, we got to take down Nero. We got we to vote Nero out. We got to legislate morality because that's a great way to make people do what is right. Listen, every time the church has gotten involved in politics, it's been an absolute disaster from this very history. The problem is we don't read history any longer. Look at the Catholic Church's control of Europe through the Dark Ages. It was called the Dark Ages for a reason, because the church was engaged in things it was not called to be engaged in. We were never supposed to proselytize by the sword. That's why we don't like the word proselytize. In fact, if we would just see people as people and not projects, it's not proselytizing, it's sharing with others the love that we ourselves have experienced from a God who has lovingly met us in our own brokenness. That's not something that can be enforced by a sword, is it? And so I don't ever try to argue for Christianity based upon its own broken history. I would say it's one of the great arguments for sin, which is the greatest evidence for the Christian faith, is the brokenness of the world and that the church is built upon the shoulders of fallen people. But the fact is, is that we cannot afford to pick teams. Team Jesus is not pro-Republican, pro-Democrat, pro-Socialist, pro-Capitalist. Team Jesus is pro-dictatorship. It's just that he's a good dictator. He's Lord. Whoever believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead and confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord shall be saved. That is the premise and the content of our message is that we are bringing forth to the world this statement. You can't save yourself. You're lost, but there is someone who loves you. And, and I am here to say that this is how God's love has changed my life and has made me actually care about you. I care about you now because I'm not spending the time that I used to looking in at my own navel trying to figure out how I can be the center of my own universe. And I know that that's a dead end road. And I wanna just say there's a better way. And the world would have you believe something different, but we're here to tell you about Jesus because he's beautiful. And I think that this is, the problem is that too many Christians actually right now because of their areas in their lives where they're holding on to, to undealt with anger have foolishly become tools of the enemy. Foolishly become tools of the enemy. When he says you fool, I think it's important that raka is an Aram Aramaic term for, for contempt. Contempt. It's the murderous heart. What's the divine order then? What's the answer to that? I could just beat you guys up all day on this one because it's, it's just too easy. We're such a violent world. I mean, it's just, it's, it's true. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. There is a divine order in things. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come in 2 Corinthians 5. The old is gone and the new is here. All this from God who has what? Reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that committed to us the message. Uh, it says but that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors 
as though God were making his appeal through us. Let me ask you the question, does your life model a ministry of reconciliation? Or is your worldview, your political views, so tainted your ability to be a conduit for Jesus that you believe that you are acting in righteousness because you're on the right team? We should all go back and listen to, we should all go back to listen to Dylan's song, uh, his famous song, but I've got, we've got God on our side. That's always the justification historically for, for war even, is God's on our side. We're the righteous country. The good guys versus bad guys, right? Isn't that one of the things that is often unhinged soldiers on the, on the battlefield? Is that good guys versus bad guys becomes a meaningless thing when it's actually young, usually historically it was very young men fighting based upon a love of country against other really young men who are fighting based upon love against country. And often the most, the most painful uh, and best books to read on, on history of war is there's often just terrified young people fighting the war of a few select people in power that have demanded that this is necessary for the preservation of our way of life. And what you end up with is thousands and thousands of people dead. That's why Gerard says, all of us live our lives, even our ability to stand up against the injustices of history, um, all of us, our lives are built upon violence. And Jesus wants us to understand that just because you're out, not out actually physically killing someone, you're still a murderer, which is why we need grace. I have to say, scripture says, no murderer shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But at the same time, there will not be anyone in the kingdom of heaven that isn't been a murderer. This is why we also can say evil people are not those people that are outside of God's love. We would say that all people are evil and there are two categories, evil people that say yes to Jesus and evil people that say no. That's it. So what do we have here in this, this statement? First go and be reconciled to them. In other words, if you say, I am right with God, I know Jesus, I have accepted his reconciliation, can you, in good conscience, then refuse to offer that reconciliation to others? calling themselves alcoholics, part of their healing is recognizing what they are without help, the help of others. But one of the most important aspects of that healing is now going out and doing all that you can to make right relationships that have been hurt. Because at the end of the day, as I, I come close to 50 years old, um, I'll be 50 in May, um, and I can't believe it, because I feel like I'm 20 still, and I act like it, um, is, uh, and the only thing I can, only thing I, I, I cling to is that my 21-year-old son likes to wear my clothes, which makes me feel like not totally lame. But you can't really trust fashion of today because everything goes. So, um, uh, and my son looks like Elton John um, from 1972. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, this, this is the thing. As I moved towards 50, I started asking myself, like, what is most important? My 20s and 30s was ambition. Even when I became a Christian, the ambition was like, I want to do a lot for God. I want to, and, and often those ambitions were more important to me than relationships. With the exception of my family, I mean, we're a very close family, but I was like, I have Darcy, I have the kids, and then I, that's all I really need, and it's ministry. But as I've gotten older, I realized, like, man, I, I, I grew up with no friends because I moved every single year of my childhood, every year. I was always the outsider and I lived in my head and I felt invisible. And as I've come to work through my past and find healing, I'm realizing at the end of the day, if 
Hell is a place where relationship does not exist. Heaven is a place of restoration of relationship. And if I don't have relationships with people, then I am not functioning as a Christian. It's not enough to just be a preacher in front of people. I actually have to know and be known. I just got together with, with Greg McAvoy and we had this conversation. It's like, this is, the whole time Greg is an elder, every time, every time I got together with him, the most important thing is that we know each other, that we're in relationship with one another because we all know and Greg is a man a little bit ahead of me, we know the danger of people living in isolation from others, the havoc that it wreaks. And, and I think it's one of the things that, that actually, this is why I'm so fundamentally opposed to a Christianity that says, it's about me and God and it's nobody else's business. No, no, actually, when, it, when, when uh, Cain, was, uh, Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, you are. And I think that that is not just for blood brothers. That is the universal call upon our lives to be in the business of loving God. And that love of God is reflected by how well we love others. And it's not just loving those who love us. It's the ability to love those that don't want anything to do with us. To be okay with that. To say, I truly love you. Whether you believe what I believe or not to fundamentally lay down our lives for the good of those around us. We cannot say we love Jesus and not love our neighbor. We cannot say we love Jesus and refuse to forgive or to reconcile those whom, with those whom we've hurt. And it's not that we're saved by that action, but it is the outworking of what it means to have the love of God. I know what I have been forgiven of. He who, he who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. Maybe the lack of love that we often find in the church is because they don't actually know how much they've been forgiven of. Because their life is still built upon a standard that they have set for themselves that makes them feel all right in the world. It's what I call selective sanctification. And Jesus is not interested in the things that you do to impress him. It'll all burn up. And it's all deeply flawed, no matter how perfect you might think it is. What he is going to ask at the end of the day is, do you know me? And if you know me, then you would know what I have forgiven you of, and you would tread gently with your neighbor. And if you wanna know who your neighbor is, it's whoever is next to you, behind you, in front of you, at any given moment of any given day. As I work through the very incredibly difficult relationship with my second stepdad, I wrote a story in my book about how once he took me out fishing on the Tucannon River in the Blue Mountains, and I wanted nothing more. He was my dad's best friend, my actual biological father's best friend in high school, my mom's first love. And my mom married him when I was in sixth grade, and in sixth grade, um, he, took me, he took me fishing, and I, all I ever wanted was to have a dad around. My dad was absent. My mom wouldn't let me see him because he was a Coke dealer, so I went years and years without being around my father. And here my stepdad takes me, just me, just me, by myself, to the river to teach me how to fish. And, I, and it meant so much to me. I was like, and I wanted him to love me. I, I would have done anything to find acceptance in his eyes. And, and, and we get in the river and, and there I am standing in the water. And he says to me, if you want to be a real man, you got to bite the head off the fish when you catch it. Now, I always told this story before because I thought it was funny. And then I wrote it and then it made me cry. Because I caught this 14 inch rainbow trout and I was so excited. And I was standing behind him and I was in the river and, and I, I, it's like I felt like the heavens were on my side for once. Like, like the universe is working for me and I, I put, put the rod between my legs and I'm like the water's running around me and I unhooked the trout and I yelled out his name and he churned around and I stuck that stinking fish's head in my mouth and I could feel its mouth opening in my mouth as I bit down as hard as I could and I, if you know anything about fish, their heart kind of rests at the back of their head like, right, like low. So I bit into its heart so my mouth filled with the taste of like iron and, and, and I ripped that stinking head off and I spit it into the river and my stepdad laughed so hard he fell down in the river and in 10 seconds, 
I went from being a kid who was about to become a man to just being a kid who realized that I was having a joke played on me. And I had to wrestle through that story and I, and I started to like realize, man, have I, for, have, I for, have I forgiven him for that? And then I started thinking about all these other things like, but he's also the guy that patiently taught me how to drive a stick shift. And he inherited, he fell in love with my mom and inherited like, he inherited three extra kids when he already had three of his own. And sixth grade is like, I was a kid that liked dancing and singing. And he was like the all-star, handsome, my, even my dad, my actual dad, Al, said that John was, the, he was the great athlete. He was the all-star basketball player. He was the football player. He was the best at everything in, in the little town of Kalama, you know, the big fish in the small pond. Of course, I'm like, I'm like the most arty little kid. Like, he didn't know how to make heads or tails of me. Like, he was, he was doing the best he could and I, in my desperation, you know, probably sabotaged his ability to fully embrace me. And he, in his own brokenness, because he himself had his father killed in a car crash in fr with him in the car, his dad, behind his dad, his dad was killed instantly in this terrible car crash and it attempted suicide at 13 years old, losing a kidney. There is a reason for the compression of his emotions and his inability to fully enter into my life. And the ability to humanize both of us in the story, to have grace for me, the little boy who wanted to be loved, and grace for the, for the stepdad who didn't know how to love this little boy, is so key in finding healing that I don't share that story with you to make you feel bad. I'm worked through it. I, I have this conviction that life is actually impossible, but that God has the ability to take the brokenness of our past and weave it into his redemptive story and to actually use things that he is not responsible for to actually make us better. And I found by the end of the story, and once I brought it before the Lord, that not only was there total forgiveness, but there was, I actually missed him. I, I wish I'd had his number so I could call him. I actually don't know how to get a hold of him now because I thought of all, he taught me how to play guitar. He was the first guy to teach me how to play guitar. He taught me how to play a song for Adam by Jackson Browns, first song I ever learned. He taught me how to drive a car. He was often loving and playful with me. He did take me fishing and he meant it for good. And yes, there were other things that were cruel. There were other things that where he didn't understand me and that is life, that's mixture. But it's when we begin to believe, I'm the victim, and I'm this way because of that man. No. I'm this way because I am a product of a broken world. And because I understand my own brokenness and the way that I myself hurt people and get hurt by people, I can now function in that position of reconciliation. I have been reconciled. Therefore, I will be an ambassador of reconciliation, no matter how imperfectly it happens. This is what Jesus ends with, and we will close. Settle matters quickly while your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18 that has very similar language. When, when Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And what did Jesus say to him? I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, infinitely. You will forgive him as often as he sins against you because you have been forgiven. What was the first thing that Jesus spoke from the cross? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He goes on in Matthew 18 to tell the parable of the unforgiving servant. And this, a servant is forgiven much, but then turns around and refuses to forgive those that are working under him. And when his master finds out, he says this to him. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, and in anger, and this is righteous anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Notice, this isn't a conversation 
about hell because there's the possibility of, of it being dealt with, but it, it enslaves. His unwillingness to function in mercy enslaved him. His action enslaved him. We are products of cause and effect. If you refuse to forgive someone, I promise you, your anger will enslave you. It will do damage to you. It will hurt your relationships and you don't get to skip steps in, in sanctification. Our sanctification is a daily surrender to Jesus. And what happens when we don't forgive, God's forgiveness toward us becomes, becomes more and more obscured, more abstract, less tangible. His voice becomes quieter and quieter because the voice of agitation and bitterness begins to amplify until we can no longer hear the still soft voice of God. If you are holding on to anger and unforgiveness towards someone that has hurt you, or if you know you have hurt someone deeply, and I would say we probably have both of these realities going at all times, um, do what all, all that you can to make right with those that you have hurt and be quick to forgive those that have hurt you because it's the key to freedom. What Jesus is after is your freedom and your joy. I like this because this points to the, the problem is, is that we prefer justice over mercy. And there's nothing wrong with justice, but how can we demand justice for ourselves when we don't actually know ourselves that well and when we're in, unwilling to see how unjust we have been in our own dealings with people? That's the hypocrisy of the world. Is like, I'm gonna make that person pay because they did that and they really did do that, but we're not gonna talk about the things, you know, it's, there's nothing worse than a politician like slamming another politician for bad behavior only to find out that in secrecy that person's been doing the exact same thing. Such is the nature of the world. And this is why I brought up the political posturing that we have, is that we had this whole thing of like, we've got to stand up against, you know, pick a side. We gotta stand up against fascism. We have to stand up against, against anarchy. And I'm like, you know what? We follow Jesus and he says we've gotta love both sides. I'm not picking a side because both sides are made up with broken people who have part of the story, part of the narrative, and there's flaws on both sides. Every ideology is flawed. There is no perfect political system. There is no perfect country. Kingdoms of men come and go. They always have. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It means that our primary responsibility here on earth is I try to be a good citizen, vote according to my conscience, all those things, but, but I do nothing that would, that would create isolation between me and another human being. And, and what I mean by that is I'm not picking a side so that you can become my enemy because Jesus said I'm called to love my enemies. And that's why people hate it that I play Switzerland. They're like, well, which side is it? Yes. I'm in Team Jesus. <laughs> Children of light, love. And love releases wrongs, reconciles relationships, and covers a multitude of sins. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Look what it says in 1 John, and we'll close here. Two, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Our age right now is the age of the clenched fist. And the clenched fist has been a symbol of many, many ideologies. Right now, it's the symbol of Black Lives Matters. It's also the symbol of white nationalism. Did you know that? It's also the symbol of the Black Panther movement. Before that, it's the symbol of, of, of socialist movements. And the first time the, the raised fist was actually um, put into an emblem for, um, for an uprising was actually in Spain uh, with the attempts to bring down, bring down the, what was viewed as a dictatorship. Uh, and, and yet that fist, I always say, I'm not interested in discussing the ideologies behind it. What I'm interested in is asking the question of what does the fist represent? 
And the fist is never something that we embrace another with. The fist is someone we use to punch. The fist is an emblem of rage. It's the uprising of those who view themselves as oppressed against who they view as the oppressor. Compare that to the open wounded hand. And Jesus says to the oppressor, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That he is the one oppressed, and the oppression that he goes under is willing because what he wants to do is embrace, not punch. This is the call of the kingdom of God. And it cannot happen if we do not allow. The divine order is we recognize that God has met us in our brokenness and has forgiven us much, forgiven us all. And because I have been forgiven much and because I have been loved much, I now have the ability to be a conduit of that same love. And to refuse to be a conduit of that love is the thing that stifles the love of God in our lives and quiets the voice of God. So open up your hearts to his voice and move into reconciliation because we cannot love God and hate our neighbor. It just doesn't work. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to transform our lives. And I pray right now that we would be a people that invites and embraces even those whom we disagree with fervently. I pray that we would be a people that function in grace, that we would recognize our own limitations, that we don't know the whole story, that we don't have all the details. And there are a lot of things that we can see that are blatantly wrong, blatantly against you, but how quickly we turn that is into an excuse for not loving others. Lord, may we recognize that hatred in the heart is the same as murder. That anger toward another that is not dealt with, that does not quickly move toward reconciliation will lead to a spiritual stronghold over our lives and have great impact on our bodies, our minds, and our relationships. I pray that Door of Hope would be a community that seeks reconciliation with one another. That we would not be a people that are marked by all the things we're mad about. Lord, there was so much, I just saw so much anger in myself over the last several years and it's not surprising that I had an emotional breakdown at the in last spring, Lord, because there was so much anger that was not being dealt with. And Lord, I just pray, I thank you for the ways that you showed me that over my sabbatical, as hard as it was. And I pray that over every friend here, that we would take an honest examination of our hearts and we'd recognize that our freedom comes in our reception, our receiving your love, and then becoming conduits of it. We love much because we've been forgiven much. And maybe if there isn't a lot of love, maybe it's because we don't know what we've been forgiven of. And so I pray, Jesus, right now that your love would be poured out on this people. And I just ask you guys, as you're sitting there, just to open up your hands and face them toward, toward the sky. Lord, we don't want to have clenched fists. We don't want to be closed off to your forgiveness. What we want to be is a people that receive your love so that we can give it away. And so, Lord, I pray with hands open toward you that we we would recognize that we are lost without you, that we need you, and you are so good toward us. And I pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit out on us, make us conduits of that grace, that love. Lord, we need you. The world is so angry. And Lord, often we become foolishly engaged in ways that does not bring healing, only brings further division. Lord, we don't want to be a people of clenched fists. We wanna be a people that embrace that forgive, that enter into that ministry of reconciliation. So be with us, Jesus. We pray these things in your name and all God's people said, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. 
But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroforhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.